It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I was working in my home office yesterday when I got a call from Fox. It was Martha McCallum's show asking if I could do a phoner about the news. I just seen the headline about five minutes earlier that Christine McVie of Fleetwood Mac had died. And so I had about three more minutes to just do a little bit of research. I mean, I was really sad about this. I mean, Fleetwood Mac had this incredible sound that has lasted decades. And anybody who's ever listened to the band knows Christine McVie's voice. But what I told Martha in that brief phoner was that as an incredible singer as she was, she was a very talented songwriter. Uh, She wrote Over My Head and Say You Love Me and uh, also the song You Make Love and Fun. Um, You know, maybe Stevie Nicks got more publicity, but the two of them in the same band, I mean, it was just incredible. Now, Fleetwood Mac, I know this is sort of a boomer thing because, you know, you had to be around in the 1970s at the peak of their population. And I, and I made the further point that, you know, a lot of the rock icons are now leaving us, uh, talking about the deaths of people like Tom Petty and David Bowie and Glenn Fry of the Eagles. Uh, you know, you still got Paul McCartney out there putting on incredible shows at the age of 80 and Bruce Springsteen doing the same thing, and he's in his late 70s. Um, but clearly, an era is ending, it is inevitable, and raises the question of whether rock will continue without these famous names when a lot of the younger people have moved on to, you know, Taylor Swift and pop music and, and other forms of music, rap music, whatever. Um You know, Fleetwood Mac, like many bands of that era, had a kind of a tumultuous history because Christine McVie was married to fellow bandmate John McVie. Then they got divorced, and they still maintained a professional relationship so they could make music. But You Make Love and Fun uh, was a song about Christine McVie's affair with the lighting director for the band. Uh, and so, then she later laughed and she came back and other people laughed. You know, Mick Fleetwood is, was the perfectionist, uh, in that rapidly changing, uh, situation. You know, Stevie Nicks putting out a heartfelt note saying, um, this is, uh, Christine has been her best friend in the whole world since the first day of 1975. Uh, there are no words to describe our sadness at the, at the passing of Christine McVie and Bill Clinton. Uh, posted something on Twitter saying he was always grateful uh, that he was able to use the Fleetwood Mac song Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow uh, as his campaign theme when he was running. All right, as long as we're dealing with sad news, this is sad to me at least, the Washington Post magazine is going to stop printing in just a few weeks. The executive editor, Sally Busby, making this announcement There were 10 people who work for the magazine and they're all losing their jobs and they're not being placed elsewhere. This has nothing to do with them failing. In fact, earlier this year, Sally Busby praised the magazine for doing an excellent job. 
said the post was committed to printing it, but that didn't last long. I mean, look, mostly the era of Sunday magazines is over. The New York Times magazine is the sort of gold standard. Boston Globe has one. Post is one of the few remaining ones. And, you know, it used to be, I mean, I've written many times for the Washington Post magazine, and it was a great forum. It was a time when, you know, it, it really, uh, people would look to it for really superb journalism. And I'm not saying it doesn't do any now. In fact, two years ago, Washington Post magazine won a National Magazine Award, and it's won two Pulitzers uh, for pieces over the years. But it can't attract the advertising, and that's what's happening. And there's lots of places to do long form now, including the endless forum of online. But, you know, the Post um, recently eliminated its Sunday Outlook opinion section, which I also wrote for and was the deputy editor uh, one summer when somebody was away. And that, again, you know, print sections don't necessarily have the prestige when everybody's got an opinion online. But, you know, it just seems to me the reason to buy newspapers is shrinking. If you're, if you're taking away the, these features and you're kind of essentially pushing people to go online, then, then why buy the print paper? And I'm a guy who likes print. Uh, all right. Um, so you remember all the focus on rising gas prices during the campaign. The Republicans would relentlessly hammer away at that. Well, now the cost of gas is falling so fast that it's actually providing you know, a financial boost to people who have to buy a lot of it. The uh, average nationwide price of a gallon, now three fifty. dollars uh, There's a company projecting you could drop below $3 by Christmas. That would be back where it was. In fact, today, it is just as cheap to fill up your car as it was in February before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which is at least part of the reason uh, for the price spike. So it seems to me if it was a huge story when gas prices were skyrocketing out of control, it ought to be some kind of story uh, if they're now dropping. For one thing, it affects an awful lot of people. For another thing, uh, you know, President Biden, who obviously released oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to help moderate the rise, uh, might just want to talk about this. All right, story number one. Some new tidbits and factoids and insight in, again, the Washington Post uh, about the whole dinner. And I don't want to talk about the dinner every day for the next two weeks. But the first, the, 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 the story tries to go broad by saying Donald Trump's refusal to apologize or disavow uh, for dining with two now well-known anti-Semites Um uh, is setting him at odds with leaders of his own party. Well, that's obvious if you've been watching the news or listening to me or reading newspapers uh, that you had Mitch McConnell denounce Trump, that you even had Kevin McCarthy try to criticize Trump, went a little bit beyond the facts. And all of these other senators, was one after another, John Thune, Johnny Ernst, it just went on and on and on, as well as you know criticism from some Jewish leaders and organizations. So... The way the Post puts it is the fracas is testing how Republicans will handle the party's extreme fringe in the months ahead after years of racist, 
misogynist, and anti-Semitic speech flooding into the political bloodstream during the Trump era. Now, that's not all Donald Trump's fault, I hasten to add. Now, here's some of the backstage details. According to uh, advisors who spoke on condition of anonymity, Trump has been taken aback by the backlash and maintained that the controversy would blow over. I think it's dying down, they recalled Trump saying. You know, this is the situation where he agreed to have dinner with Kanye West, who's been spewing all kinds of anti-Semitic bile, and Kanye West brings along Nick Fuentes, who's a Holocaust denier, who's a racist, who's a virulent anti-Semite, and who's never gotten so much free publicity in his young life. And, um, you know, Trump says he didn't know the guy, and, you know, somehow he got in, and they had the dinner, and then he finally put out the statement saying, well, I wouldn't have tolerated it, I wouldn't have accepted it if he had said anything over dinner. Well, the point is not what he said over dinner or didn't say over dinner. It's what he's been saying his whole career, and uh, Trump's had enough time to figure this out. Up to the day of the dinner, says this story, multiple advisors tried to convince Trump to cancel it. Ah, so this didn't take people in, his, in Trump world by surprise. They knew he wanted to dine with Kanye, and they thought it was a horrible idea, and they were right. Advisors showed Trump some of Ye's comments in the efforts to talk him out of the dinner. Ye has lost business deals and has been widely condemned for explicitly anti-Semitic tweets and diatribes. But Trump, said one advisor, wasn't having any of it. He's, he was focused on uh, Kanye's history of praising him, saying he's always been a nice guy to me. You may recall Kanye visited the White House in 2018, frequently praised the then-president. Several advisors said Trump was now angry at Ye for bringing Fuentes, but they said Trump didn't plan to attack Ye publicly. Yeah, he didn't do him any favors. But this shows you that this was not just sort of a spur of the moment, hey, I'm going to be in Palm Beach, can I come by? They, the people around Donald Trump knew that Kanye was coming to dinner. Obviously, they didn't know about Fuentes. And they tried very hard to say, Donald Trump, sir, this is a really bad idea two weeks after you launch your presidential candidate. And it didn't matter. Because Trump, like Kanye, because Kanye, according to this reporting, had a high opinion of him, which we have seen. And now he's mad at Kanye. It's a mess. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. Story number two. Remember the Georgia Senate runoff? It's next Tuesday. Imagine how bombarded with stories you would have been about that race had the Democrats not managed to pull out a whole bunch of races and maintain control of the Senate at worst with a 50-50 tie. But as I've said, first of all, it's just interesting, the politics of it in and of itself. Secondly, it'll be a big difference whether or not there's a 51st Democratic senator and the Biden White House facing a Republican House could afford to lose one Democratic senator on something that's controversial. The name Joe Manchin comes to mind. And you know, not have to have Kamala Harris break all those ties. Anyway, Herschel Walker, according to, uh, this is from a journalist for Axios, but other journalists covering this race 
as well, uh, has a new rule at his events, and he's not doing that many events. Journalists can't get within 20 feet of Walker afterwards. You'll recall he's running against uh, Senator Raphael Warnock in this uh, runoff after neither one got 50% of the vote. I guess I can say last month, because today is December 1st. And Walker hasn't had a press conference in almost two months. So basically, they've made a decision that whatever heat they get for stiff-arming the press doesn't matter and is better than you know these kinds of questions being shouted. Uh, meanwhile, he had this other controversy, Herschel did, about when he talked about uh, living in Texas and being in his Texas home when he decided to run in Georgia and claiming his Texas residence uh, for a tax deduction that you can only claim if it's your primary residence. Meanwhile, Daily Beast has a piece uh, quoting one longtime former girlfriend of Herschel Walker describing a violent episode with the football star. She says he's unstable and has little or no control over his mental state. Her name is Cheryl Parsa. She lives in Dallas. She said she was dating Walker for five years beginning shortly after his divorce. Um, she says he's a pathological liar, but it's more than that. He knows how to manipulate his disease in order to manipulate people, uh, using it as an alibi to justify lying, cheating, and ultimately destroying families. Um, in 2005, this woman, Parsa, says she caught Herschel Walker with another woman at his Dallas condo. She said Walker grew enraged, put his hands on her chest and neck, and swung his fist at her. I thought he was going to beat me, she said, and she fled. I think a lot of people are going to dismiss that as a last-minute hit, but she's on the record, and that's what she says. Meanwhile, Atlanta Journal-Constitution says that while Warnock was uh, holding a whole series of rallies in recent days, Herschel Walker's been nearly invisible, Warnock's raised a lot more money, and so he's been blanketing the ads, uh, the airwaves, I should say, with anti Herschel ads, um, showing him kind of stumbling, his speech gaffes, including the one where he's talking about that horror movie he saw and said, a werewolf can kill a vampire. Did you know that? It's just, it's an amazing, just sort of rambling. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just, you just, when you're running for the United States Senate, you would think you wouldn't be talking about vampires and werewolves. And um, Warnock is making this pitch to liberals, and some uh, Republicans are alarmed by uh, Herschel's rather reduced schedule, shall we say, and Barack Obama uh, will join a rally for Warner today. So, look, it was so tight before, I don't expect a blowout here. It's all about who shows up. This is the, you know, you're not showing up to vote for other things like in a normal midterm election. So it's who's more excited and who can get their troops out. Story number three, Hakeem Jeffries was elected yesterday as the House Democratic leader, meaning he will be the House Minority Leader in the new Republican-controlled Congress. And it's another one of these milestones in the sense that we've had a black president, we now have a black vice president, we for the first time have a black woman serving on the Supreme Court, and this is the first time in either party in American history that the leader of one of those parties in Congress 
has been somebody who is black. And so what's interesting is there was no sort of messy fight about Hakeem Jeffries succeeding Nancy Pelosi when she decided to step down from her leadership position um, after the midterms. And it's a whole generational transfer, too, because Steny Hoyer, who's also an octogenarian, and Jim Clyburn, they all decided to step down en masse. All these pretty old, I can't think of a a nicer word, nothing wrong with that. Pelosi still seems to have plenty of energy. They all decided to give way. So the number two House Democrat will be Congresswoman Catherine Clark. The number three will be Congressman Pete Aguilar. So it's kind of like a rainbow coalition thing because you've got the black leader, Jeffries at the top, woman as number two, and a Hispanic man as number three. They jokingly referred to themselves as the kids' table in the last two years. They weren't openly maneuvering for these jobs because nobody knew whether Pelosi and Hoyer and company would step down. Um, but they somehow managed to build support, you know, from the progressive squad, according to Politico, to conservative blue dogs. The new slate of Democratic leaders benefited from their representation of almost every slice of the Big Tent party. And also not just on the racial or ethnic front, but they it's kind of a mix of both coasts, because Hakeem Jeffries from New York, Aguilar from California, and a mix of progressive and more moderate views. I mean, that's makes sense, given that not everybody, not every Democratic member of Congress is, you know, in the Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren mold. Story number three, Sam Bankman-Fried speaks out, or as Dredge put it in a headline today, crypto creep, uh, denies it was his fault. All right, so this is the guy. He just keeps on giving interviews. I don't know what he thinks he's doing here. He was speaking yesterday at the New York Times Deal Book Summit remotely. And, you know, he basically, people have lost billions of dollars because of Sam Bankman-Fried, who, as I've said, had a great segment on Media Buzz, he was lionized by the media as this, you know, quirky, eccentric young man who nevertheless, you know, rose to the top of the cryptocurrency industry, lived with, you know, um, handful of colleagues who took turns having romantic relationships in the sort of top floor of this nice building in the Bahamas. And then it all fell apart. Turns out they were playing with other people's money. Most of those people will hardly get anything back, if at all. FTX, his company, was worth $32 billion. Now it's in bankruptcy. All right, so what did he say? He said he screwed up. Duh. Um asked about criminal liability, uh, he was kind of fidgeting. He said, there's a time and a place for me to think about myself and my own future. I don't think this is it. Uh, he still believes the customers can be made fully whole. Yeah, good luck with that. He said he had close to nothing. He hadn't hidden any funds. He had one credit card. Asked what happened to the $515 million that was suspiciously transferred from FTX after the bankruptcy filing. He rattled off some things, improper access of assets. He said his lawyers did not support his decision to speak. Of course they don't. They're going to eventually try to keep him out of jail. I have a duty to talk and explain what happened. He said he didn't know of times that he lied. Uh, I was as truthful as I am knowledgeable to be. Uh, what kind of dodge is that? 
Yeah, I said things I thought were true. Turns out they weren't. Everybody else lost money. Sorry about that. See you later. Wowza. And, you know, the media played a role here. The business press fell down. It's just like the Elizabeth Holmes thing. He was on the cover of Forbes. He was on the cover of Fortune. The next Warren Buffett question mark? No. More like the next Elizabeth Holmes. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Story number four. Get into our tech section here. There's a lot of juicy stuff. Apple's uh, power because of the App Store. Mark Zuckerberg speaking out on behalf of Facebook and Meta at some other conference. I don't know. What do these people do? And how do they work? They're always flying off the conferences. Uh, he says, if you look at the competing platforms, Apple stands out. It's the only one where one company, says Zuck, can control what apps get on the device. I don't think it's sustainable or good. Well, yeah, because Facebook and Meta, Twitter's in the same situation. I'll get to that in a moment. Um, we have very difficult, we've had great difficulty functioning if, you know, the app store is this gateway to how people, you know, it's the easiest, quickest way to download and search for things you might be interested in. Um, Yale Roth, former head of trust and safety at Twitter, wrote an opinion piece saying that uh, if Apple or Google were to remove Twitter from the App Store, it would be catastrophic. Zuckerberg contrasted the App Store for Apple with Google Play app. Google might controls what goes in the Play Store, but they've always made it so you can sideload and have other app stores and work directly with phone manufacturers. Okay. Apple, okay, now we get to the money part. Apple also made changes to its privacy policy. Last year, they made it more difficult for social media like Facebook to target users with their ads. Meta's profits slid by more than 50% in the third quarter. Now we know why Zuckerberg is angry. He said Apple obviously has their own interest, but there's a conflict of interest there because obviously Apple also makes the iPhone. Now, turning to Elon Musk, I know you've all been waiting. Top European Union officials warning Musk yesterday that Twitter needs to beef up measures to protect users from hate speech, misinformation, other harmful content, to avoid violating new rules that threaten tech giants with big fines or even a ban in those 27 countries. Well, Twitter seems to be moving in the opposite direction, but we shall see. Um, Musk hit back. The other day, against criticism, I mentioned the former safety director there, and he said, the obvious reality, as longtime users know, is that Twitter has failed in trust and safety for a very long time and has interfered in elections. Twitter 2.0 would be far more effective, transparent, and even-handed. But here's the really embarrassing part, and it's kind of a kicker to what I've been talking about in recent days with Elon Musk taking on Apple. And he said, Apple must hate free speech. And he went on this little crusade, and he said that Tim Cook, the head of Apple, uh, had pulled most of his advertising. And he said, Tim Cook and Apple were threatening to kick Twitter off the App Store with no reason given. And he just mounted this crusade. And he just, you know, was ripping this company. 
And now we're into the, oh, never mind. Apparently the two men talked. And Musk posted this. Good conversation. Among other things, we resolved the misunderstanding about Twitter potentially being removed from the App Store. Tim was clear that Apple never considered doing so. Well, that's a very smooth and delicate way of saying I was wrong. I made a totally unsubstantiated charge against one of the biggest companies in the world. I didn't have the facts. It wasn't real. I'm not going to apologize. I'm just going to say, hey, we had a good conversation. Time to move on, dude. Jeez. I mean, it's fine to pick fights. Twitter's a pretty good place to do it. Musk obviously likes to fight. And he knows that controversy drives people to his new $44 billion property. But, you know, I regret an apology. I mean, uh, not hearing it. Okay, one last little tidbit. I can't resist this. This just popped up. Uh, among his many other companies, Tesla, SpaceX, boring. There's also a company called Neuralink that deals with computers and neurological stuff. And Elon Musk announcing that this other company, Neuralink, uh, will in a few months have perfected the technology to implant a computer, I assume a tiny one, in somebody's brain. And he says, he, Elon Musk, will get a brain implant. He said, I could have one in right now because it's undetectable. In fact, in one of these demos, I will. Somebody quoted him as saying that, and he said, yep. So what will Elon Musk be like with a computer chip in his head? Is this thing actually going to catch on, or is this another, like, let's all go live on Mars kind of thing by Musk? All right, story number five. New York Times columnist Brian Chen has this uh, piece that kind of creeps me out. But it's funny, so I'll share it with you. <laughs> Talking, I mean, it's, I didn't intend it this way, but going from um, brain implants on the computers, of the computers to sleep tracking by Amazon. In the column, Brian Chen says, is there any technology more ironic than sleep tracking? Tech companies say they are wearables and apps. Study your body as you snooze. and can help you get a better night's rest. But many sleep experts and the companies themselves say technology itself is to blame when you don't sleep well. So this is just bizarro land. Uh, our brightly lit smartphones and networking apps create distractions that may be keeping us up and contributing to poor sleep. I'm sure that's absolutely true. I'll plead guilty to that. Uh, so one of the most common pieces of advice you get about getting better sleep is to stop using tech a few hours before bedtime. So why are we adding more tech to our sleep routine? Well, I'll tell you. So Amazon now is selling for $140, if you act now, the Halo Rise. It's a ring-shaped alarm clock with a built-in sleep tracker. It uses motion sensors, or at least it's not attached to your brain, to study your movement and breathing patterns and assess your sleep. And to wake you up, it includes a light that can be programmed to gradually get brighter, which is, I guess, a good way to wake up. All right. With hopes of solving my own sleep problems, the columnist says, I've been testing this. Uh, including other products made by Fitbit, etc. I've repeatedly felt let down because the data gathered simply confirmed that I had poor rest and at times made me feel even more anxious about that. 
The data was of questionable accuracy, though I like being woken up by the yellow light. You could do the same thing with a light bulb plugged into a timer. Plus, the benefits weren't strong enough to warrant giving even my more or even more of my data to Amazon. And that's the first thing I thought. I don't want Amazon what's, knows what's going on when I'm sleeping. They already know too much about me from all the crap I buy. All right, so for four sleep sessions, during which I didn't feel I slept particularly well, Halo graded my sleep good. On each of those nights, my dog, a Labrador with special needs, woke me up at an odd hour to go outside. Well, there's your problem right there. Monday night was especially problematic. I went to bed at 10.30. I tossed and turned, occasionally looking at the clock, for at least three hours before finally falling asleep. The alarm went off at 6 a.m. The Halo app reported that I had slept six hours and 37 minutes and considered this good. Uh, yeah. Let's just say that's uh, off my gift list. I will do my best to sleep on my own, deal with whatever insomnia problems I may have without Amazon tracking me. Thanks, but no thanks. And thanks to you for listening uh, as we ramble on here today. I think this whole tech section at the end was probably the most interesting thing of the day. Maybe one day I should flip it and leave. I mean, I've led with Musk a lot because, you know, he's Elon. But one day I should flip it and get to politics and media later. But, you know, it's a work in progress as always. And uh, the numbers show that a lot of people like listening. So with that, I will simply say, see you all tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.